I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Bees. We all know that they're vital members of our ecosystem, but what can we do to help them? Well, that's where initiatives like the Bees Needs Week come in. Awareness campaigns that encourage us all to do our bit at home to care for these marvellous insects. And today's episode is sure to set you abuzz with inspiration. We'll be going on a bee walk at RHS Garden Wisley with wildlife experts Helen Bostock and Nick Chu to learn more about how to bee spot and contribute to conservation efforts. Then we'll relax into a mindful exploration of forest bathing under a gorgeous canopy of trees and flowers before discovering the wonderful world of shrubby sinkfoil, a native shrub on the RHS Plants of Pollinators list with organic landscape gardener Ellie from the Wildlife Garden podcast. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. By now, all of us would have heard the classic advice on how best to encourage bee populations in our green spaces, from cutting down on pesticides to letting our gardens grow wild. But did you know that there's a way to help your local bees and the Bumblebee Conservation Trust as you go on an hour-long ramble? We spoke to two experts at RHS Garden Wisley to hear more about this beautiful practice. They sometimes are quite sensitive to being on mic. <laughs> I'm Helen Bostock and I'm the Senior Wildlife Specialist at the RHS. I'm Nick Tew and I'm a researcher looking at plants for pollinators at the RHS. So today we're stirred right in the heart of our country garden at Wisley in Surrey. There's lots of different types and styles of garden and planting within the garden. And what we were really interested to know is just how good are some of those four different species of wildlife. And so this year we've started up what's called a bee walk. A bee walk is run by Bumblebee Conservation Trust and it's a national biodiversity monitoring scheme specifically looking at bumblebees across the country. And how this works is we pick a set route to walk through Wisley Gardens and this route it will encompass a few different styles of garden so we're sort of moving around the walk needs to last around about an hour or so in length and during that walk we'll be looking left and right either side of where we're walking for any signs of bumblebees so the more people who take part in this bee walk scheme who walk this fixed route and identify the bees that they can 
the better data we can get about the distribution of bumblebees in this country and about how they're responding in the face of climate change, in the face of land use change. So when you submit the data, you will include information on what habitats you're surveying. Is it ornamental gardens? Is it public green space like playing fields? And through that, we can get a better sense of which habitats are very good for pollinators and which species are found in which areas. And that allows the Bumblebee Conservation Trust to develop important observational maps of where bumblebees are found and to investigate trends through time and trends through different seasons and different years. So I think that's enough talk. We ought to set off on our bee walk whilst the weather's fine and go see what we can find. So, Nip, we're just passing one of the hardy geraniums, Macorrhizum, here, and already I've spotted quite an active, relatively small bumblebee. So that's not going to be a queen, is it? What's that likely to be? Yeah, so this is Bombus pratorum, which is the early bumblebee. So this is one of the earlier species to come out, and the workers of this species are very, very small. So this is a worker. It's got a little, little bit of red on its bum, for want of a more scientifically accurate term. So they're quite a recognisable species with that combination of the yellow stripe on the head and then the little red tail, and one of the commonest ones that you'll see in your gardens. So I think hardy geranium, I mean, it's such a good plant to have in a garden because great ground cover, and it is one of those plants that we know is pretty good for bumblebees. Right, so we just spotted another bee. This is our second so far, and it's feeding on red campion. It's a uh, common carder bumblebee, which is Bombus pascorum for the Latin names. And this is one of the more recognisable species. It's all covered in a kind of lovely ginger brown sort of hairs. So this species nests in thick long grass. Different bumblebees nest in different areas so the buff-tailed bumblebee for example nests in old rodent holes so particularly where you've got a mouse or a rat hole that's been abandoned you'll find buff-tailed bumblebee colonies there. Tree bumblebees often use bird boxes and kind of holes in trees so it's emphasizing the importance of providing a variety of different habitats for nest sites from compost heaps to long grass to old dead trees so importantly for bumblebees you need to provide the flower-rich habitat so red campion here for example would be a lovely species to have in a border providing nectar for bumblebees but also to have the areas for them to nest in conjunction. So we're now moving into our Battleston Hill area at Wisley which is as the name suggests we're about to start going uphill and we've moved from quite an open area of the garden into much more wooded area so high tree cover and in fact although we're not going to be able to perhaps spot them from ground level for our bee walk trees actually have a lot of value for pollinating insects and that might be through their flowers if they're a flowering type of tree but also we forget that trees can produce quite a lot of honeydew which again is a sugary sort of sappy material and that too is quite an important source of energy for some of our pollinating insects. It's something I noticed more when I was doing field work. So cherry laurel, for example, has extra floral nectaries where the bumblebees are visiting it, but actually when the flowers aren't out, they're visiting the leaves themselves and drinking that nectar from the base of the leaves. So it could be a really important source of additional sugar in certain environments, particularly with shrubs and trees, and not something that's actually received a lot of research attention yet. So definitely something we need to look into more in the future. The colours that we are spotting you know around us the bright vermilions and purples and whites 
quite a heady array. Is this what the bees are seeing? Just if we pause here by this really super purple rhododendron, I'm seeing nice mauve colours, but there's also kind of darker blotches in the centre of the flowers. Is that something that the plants develop to help attract pollinators? Yeah, so it's important when you're looking at the colours of different plants to appreciate that bees see in a slightly different way to us, so they're more receptive to ultraviolet radiation. And so because of that, a lot of flowers that to us might look quite plain actually have sort of hidden signals for bees. And even when you can see blotches or marks in species like this rhododendron or some cistus flowers, they can be a guide to tell the bees where to focus. There's actually just a common card of bees come into this rhododendron now. So these rhododendron flowers at the top, they all have a dark patch, which is a kind of guide that the bee will be able to see from quite a large distance. And it'll know if it goes into the back of that flower, there's a lot of nectar. So we've now come on a bit further. We're walking up uh, Woodland Path and actually, ooh, this is a good spot, Nick, because we've just come across a great big patch of comfrey. And in fact, I can already spot one or two bumblebees active on here. So let's have a closer look. Yeah, so I'm looking closely and I think I can see a second yellow band, which would mean it's the garden bumblebee. I don't know if you can see that as well, Helen. This is, <laughs> it's buzzing from flower to flower very quickly. And if it's got two yellow stripes between the head and the middle section, the thorax, then that makes it the garden bumblebee, which is one of the, well, the longest tongued species we have. So it'll particularly be visiting quite deep tubular flowers like this comfrey. And we're really getting stuck in here to some of the subtleties of bumblebee identification. So every walk we collect all the data on a kind of a clipboard that we bring along with us and then we submit it online through the Bee Walk website, through the Bumblebee Conservation Trust and that way we can ensure that our records are helping with this important research that the charity is doing. We've just seen a handful of different species of bumblebee on our very short walk and that's already, to be honest, made me smile quite a lot. I think get out into your own garden because whether you're recording them or not, this wildlife is there for us to enjoy and Oh, it's just one of the wonders of owning a garden. Yeah, so even if you haven't got the time or space to do a full bee walk, try and do your own mini bee walk around your garden or just pause at a lavender or whatever plant you have and just pause that little bit of time and see what's happening. And if you watch bees very closely, then you can't help but smile because it's just so fascinating to watch them going about their daily work. Right, so we mustn't dawdle. We've got 15 minutes or so of our walk left to do, Nick. Let's get cracking. Thanks to Helen Bostock and Nick Chew. If you're interested in charting your own local population of bees, head to beewalk.org.uk. Helen and Nick spotted a rhododendron covered in bees. In my garden, I have a tree. It's called a rus, which is R-H-U-S, and it's about uh, 20 foot tall. And starting in July and going on until September, it is absolutely covered in honeybees. Every honeybee for miles around must come to this tree. And of course, honeybees do travel a long way to gather pollen and nectar. And this tree is called my buzz tree. And I sit under it in the afternoon and evening and it's accompanied by this gentle buzz which almost drowns out the train line running along the bottom of the garden. It's extraordinary. Forest bathing. Ever heard of it? It's a practice that was first officially named in Japan in the 1980s, following studies that demonstrated how two hours of mindful exploration in a forest could lead to a range of physical health benefits. We wanted to see what a garden that draws on this practice could look like, which is why, a couple of weeks ago, 
we went on a trip to the Hampton Court Palace Garden Festival to visit the Forest Bathing Garden. Hi, I'm Bryony Doubleday. I was one of the planting team members here on the build of the Forest Bathing Garden by Dave Green Gardens Limited. So the garden draws on a practice that involves spending time under the canopy of trees. You can see here how the sun's coming through and creating dapple patterns. You can almost feel how cool it is when you get into the garden. And being surrounded by nature improves health and well-being. And you can create a mindfulness experience just by being here. You might have noted the lounges in the garden, so you can just lie down and just take in the sounds and the smells of being in the forest. And you can touch the bark, watch out for the creative light, as you can see as it goes through the meadow here, through to the darker, deeper, shady areas. The leaf litter and mosses, you get a sense of place, and the smell was amazing. Just as that was going into the garden, it just smelled wonderful. very foresty and green and fresh and oh, it's just wonderful. So there's a really good contrast from the textures and the foliage. You can see you've got some of the darker plants, so you've got the Physocarpus, you've got the Heuchera, then you've got the bright greens of like the Alcamilla, sort of a nice lime green. Then you've got the flowering plants, so you've got the Tiarella and the Geranium, the Astrantia. Um, then the tall spires, so you can see you've got the foxgloves. There's a sanguisorba that's also got soft, almost like squirrel tail flowers hanging down. Along the edges, you can see the grasses here. So you can see there's Calamagrostis overdam through to then at the back of the meadow, you can see here. So there's a range of trees in the garden. These the lovely Zelkova trees, the Japanese trees at the entrance and exit of the garden. And there's some beautiful multi-stem birches. Uh, just, oh, they're just wonderful. If you had a small garden, you could just have one of those and you would get this feeling of sort of been encapsulated by the forest. Oh, I think what's so great about a garden like the Forest Bathing Garden is just tiny little pockets so they could see one corner just here or one tree and all the plants surrounding it. You could recreate that in any shady garden. You know, everyone's got somewhere to put their bins or somewhere like that. And actually you could take a picture of these plants, you could look the plants up online and you could recreate that really easily in a small space. I mean, the effects of forest bathing on your well-being, even just 20 minutes out in a green space or in nature, it lowers your cortisol levels, your stress hormones going down, you just gain a bit more perspective, your heart rate goes down. I recommend to everyone, just take that moment in your day and go somewhere green and look at a tree and just breathe in the smells. Thanks to Bryony Doubleday. I must say that in my profession you kind of suffer from horticulture, so I wouldn't say that the allotment makes me feel calmer, but it's certainly very satisfying. However, I grew up in the woods of the Cranbourne Chase in Wiltshire and Dorset, and I really love a walk in the woods, especially in high summer, and I love the shade and the sounds and the smells of the forest. Of course, forests can be very shady, and the tree roots can rob the soil of moisture, but there are many plants that can be grown in these shady spots. If you're lucky enough to have moist shade, then you can grow a wide range of plants. If you've got acid soil, you can grow camellias and rhododendrons. If you've got alkaline soil, there's evergreen berberus and mahonias. 
And of course, ferns thrive where there's moisture as well. And ferns make the most beautiful, cool ground cover. But the thing that RHS members contact the RHS advice service about mostly is dry shade. And dry shade is really, really difficult. And I'm sorry to say that my garden is full of dry shade. So in these sort of places, I can only grow toughies. And fortunately, I've got a soft spot for them. So I've got things like vinca and ivies and hellebores, lots and lots of hellebores. And I grow lots and lots of spring bulbs as well that do their flowering before the soil gets too dry. And so I've got a limited repertoire of plants, but I do have a lovely shady spot to enjoy the heat of the summer. So if you have a shady garden, don't be too concerned. There's still plenty of options for you to try. Now let's leave the forest and head to the banks of the River Tees. One of the only places in the UK where you'll find a certain yellow flowering shrub growing in the wild. We spoke to a native plant expert to learn more about this marvellous wildflower that provides a cornucopia of pollen for our hungry British bees. My name's Ellie and I'm co-presenter of the Wildlife Garden podcast with my partner Ben. And by day, we're also organic wildlife gardeners. Ben and I started the Wildlife Garden podcast because we wanted to share the upstate science behind wildlife gardening in the UK, although hopefully some of it's relevant to our international listeners. But as part of the podcast, we decided to do a native plant of the month. And that is because we just feel like in the UK, we often hear the term depleted plant flora. Because of us being an island and how we were formed, we don't have a huge number of endemic species of plants. However, I don't think a lot of people understand exactly how beautiful some of those can be, and we wanted to celebrate them. This is also partly because of the RHS Plants for Bugs project that was undertaken. And this showed that whilst a diversity of plants in our garden can benefit invertebrates, actually native plants do have the edge and that's often because they provide the food necessary for the larval stage of a lot of our insect life. So we wanted to celebrate the ones that are garden worthy to encourage as many people as possible to see their beauty and plant them in their gardens. I think when asked what our favourite native plant is, Ben and I will change our mind on every podcast that we do because the more you learn about something, the more you love it more. But I think for both of us, one of our favourites and certainly one that we do often put in gardens is the shrubby sinkfoil or Potentilla fruticosa. It's long been a garden staple for lots of different people. It's a shrub that gets to about a metre tall, quite well behaved, it flowers for absolutely months on end with these beautiful open flowers accessible to all sorts of pollinators. And we absolutely loved it even more when we did the research. I did not know it was native to start with. It's quite rare in the UK, although it is widespread in terms of its native habitat. You can find it in North America down to Mexico and also in the Himalayas. So it's quite far reaching. In the UK, there are only two areas really where it still grows in the wild, and that is in Teesdale, and there you'll find it along river banks. And it likes the fact that rivers can scour away competitive vegetation so that it can get a stronghold, and it also likes the sediment that's laid down by the river. 
And the second place that you can find it is in Cumbria. And in Cumbria, it's actually more of a montane plant where it inhabits sort of scree slopes. So it does like that sort of loose, broken up material. It also favours more alkaline conditions. So you're unlikely to find it where you've got more acidic soil. So if you're lucky enough to encounter it in the wild in the UK, what you're going to see is a subshrub, which is just absolutely smothered in these beautiful buttercup yellow flowers. And it's just fascinating to think that not only you're going to see that in Cumbria and in Teesdale, but also in the Himalayas. Who knew? We enjoy learning about the native species because by their very nature, we have a long history of of living alongside them. So quite often there's a lot of folklore that also goes alongside the sort of more scientific botanical aspect of them. And I think that the more you see something, the less humans tend to value it. So things like just taking cow parsley as an example, it's everywhere in the UK come May. And it's really easy to take that for granted. But then when you actually delve down into its history, its life cycle, what uses it, what insects and invertebrates use it, then it suddenly takes on this entirely new meaning and significance. And I just love the fact that our insects and invertebrates do tend to favour these plants because of that long history of evolving alongside them. And what we're absolutely not saying is that we're anti-non-native plant. Let me get that straight. We plant a huge diversity of plants and, and the RHS Plants for Bugs project also showed the importance of doing that. But I just think we like to, to sing the song for these unsung heroes. If you're looking to introduce the fabulous Potentilla fruticosa or shrubby stink foil into your own garden, then it's very easy just to go out and buy one. They are widely available from garden centres across the UK. And what's even better is that the RHS has put its award of garden merit against quite a few different cultivars, all of which will be fantastic for the same invertebrate life that the native species will be but they come in a huge variety of colours as well, ranging from pink through to bright red, that beautiful buttercup yellow, but also white. So in terms of making your garden look the way you want it, you can incorporate it both for the invertebrates, but also for yourself. I, in particular, really like floppy disk, not just because it's called floppy disk, and I don't know why it's called that, but that particular one has pale pink flowers and they just look really fantastic. You can certainly grow Potentilla fruticosa in a container if that's what you need. But if you do have a space to put it in the ground, then it's just always easier to look after. As I said, it gets to about a metre tall. So it's a very it's a very small shrub as far as shrubs go. And just make sure that your soil isn't too acid. It can take mild acidity, but nothing too acid. Certainly likes alkaline conditions. So if you've got that, then fantastic. And it really enjoys a nice loamy soil. If you've got sandy soil, then do look to incorporate some organic matter just to improve it. But generally speaking, it's a very unfussy plant. Whenever I see it in a garden, because of its absolutely floriferous nature and the fact that it flowers for so long, I just think it's a very joyous little shrub that never ceases to put a smile on both of our faces. 
My dream would be that the nation as a whole would stop suffering from as much plant blindness and instead that everyone, next time they take a step out of their front door, notices the plants that are growing in the cracks between their pavement and their house or notices the trees at the end of their road. Just stop and look at them for a while and just really appreciate their beauty. Thanks, Ellie. To hear more about interesting native plants, check out the Wildlife Garden podcast. The native shrubby sink foil is something I've never grown, but I have grown enormous numbers of the garden varieties. This is what we call a car park plant, meaning it'll grow anywhere and can be maintained by the most unskilled labour. I've had a really good long look at shrubby sink foils, and if I was really pushed and my arm was twisted, I would go for the white flowered one called Abbott's Wood. It's a really graceful flower, and like all the shrubby sink foils, it's extremely easy to grow, but it does like plenty of sun, and it's a plant that'll cause no trouble and bring many benefits to the wildlife in your garden. Ellie also mentioned loamy soil. All gardeners hanker after loamy soil. It's a soil that retains moisture, it's easy to dig and cultivate, and it drains well. It doesn't lie soggy in the winter. At the other end of the extreme, there's clay soil that lies soggy all winter and is very hard to dig and cultivate, and sandy soil that drains fast and is absolutely drought-stricken in summer. But loamy soil is a mixture of clay, a slight preponderance of clay over sand, which gives it water-holding capacity. It also holds nutrients, and it's the ideal soil to garden on. Of course, most of us won't have loamy soil, sadly, but we can improve the soil by simple time-honoured remedies like adding organic matter. Organic matter means things like compost, that's compost from your compost bin rather than potting compost, composted manure and a stable manure from nearby stables, and these can be added to the soil, either digging in or probably better, applying as a mulch on the surface and they'll be taken down into the soil by worms and other animals and will improve the texture of the soil so it won't be so prone to drought if it's a sandy soil and it'll drain better and be easier to plant things in if it's a clay soil. And by doing this, and you have to do it fairly regularly, you can turn soil into something that approximates to a loamy soil if you're not lucky enough to have the real thing. Another thing you should do is just check the pH. You can buy little test kits for acidity and alkalinity in the garden centre for about £3 and they'll give you a rough idea. And if your soil is very alkaline, you'll need to choose plants that do well on alkaline soils like hellebores and berberus. And if it's acid, either choose plants that love acid soil like heathers and camellias or add garden lime, which is cheap and effective in raising the pH, making the soil more alkaline and increasing the range of plants that you can grow. Well, I hope you've been bewitched by today's episode. Well, we're in the high summer now and gardeners can sit back and enjoy the fruits of their labour. All the same, it's as well to keep up with watering and to carry on with the deadheading and do a little summer pruning if you've got fruit trees. I'll be off to the allotment soon and I'll be looking for bees, particularly on my runner beans. Runner beans are insect pollinated and depend on bees. I should also look for the naughty bees that rob the flowers by biting the ends. There's nothing much you can do about that, but uh, you usually get a good crop despite these so-called robber bees. <laughs> so from me, Guy Barter, enjoy the summer. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. 
With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.